Anyway, as Mark said, um, yeah, I just, I just finished up seminary. Um, but throughout seminary, money was super tight, as you can imagine. Uh, I knew that coming to study in the U.S., it meant that I needed to have a car to get around. Um, as you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm from England, not Australia. Some people in grocery stores have been known to say that I'm from Australia. Um, I'm sorry, but you're incorrect. <laughs> but anyway, since public transport really isn't the same um, in uh, the US as it is in the UK. Uh, I realized I finally had to get a car. I survived for about a year and a half without a car, and it just became more and more painful, and I was just thinking, okay, I've got to get this sorted, which also meant I had to get a license, which was also a process. Anyway, enter Megan the Mercedes, named after the Duchess of Sussex. Um, if you ever watch Suits, maybe you know her as Meghan Markle. Um, this car was a 2001 Mercedes E-Class station wagon, and it was an absolute tank of a car. It survived three road trips. And after about three months of driving this car, I was actually invited to the Broncos Stadium to go to a monster truck rally. And I offered to drive to this truly cultural experience. But after this epic show, you got all these cars racing around, flipping, um, featuring the infamous Gravedigger. I don't know if you guys are closet Monster Truck fans, uh, but maybe you know who I'm talking about. But we kind of walked back to the car, and I began to see like a bit of debris kind of scattered on the corner of the street as I turned, and a bit of liquid, and I was kind of wondering, what's going on? What was? Oh, no. I, I'm feeling it. I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm thinking the worst. I'm thinking, this is my car. This, this is parts of my car. I was already preparing myself mentally. And as we discovered, I kind of walked around the corner, and I picked the police note off the wiper, and it said that Megan had been involved. Obviously, they didn't know her name, but they should have. <laughs> But Megan had been involved in a hit-and-run incident, thankfully, while we were in the stadium and not in the car. Um, the police officer said they had no further details, so I was on my own. Fortunately, I had my friend who was a mechanic there who'd practically gifted the car to me, and he said, okay, I think, I think this thing's drivable. Let's just get back to, to where we carpooled from. So fast forward a year later, and Megan actually finally met her demise going over a drainage dip at the whopping speed of 30 miles an hour. I heard a loud bang, and like the back of the car just shook. I, I didn't know what had happened. I'd never actually been in a car accident, thankfully. And I just thought, what the heck is... I think this car's like got a serious problem. And I soon discovered, as I heard the... Like, I was like, what is this sound? I knew that it was, it was not good. Anyway, the next day, we got to the mechanic shop, and they checked it out. They raised it up, and it looked under, and they said, yep, both axles are completely broken. And not only that, the motor mount is broken as well. I didn't even know what a motor mount was. Uh, <laughs> So what went wrong? Well, being kind of tight on money, I asked this mechanic friend, I said, hey, can you help me kind of fix this up, patch it up, like an inexpensive kind of fix? Um, so we bought a front, I bought a front bumper. Apparently you can get one on Amazon. I had no idea. You, I bought a radiator and we replaced the wheel as well. But the big problem was that we did not fix the suspension, which was the deepest need of Megan. 
We did, we patched her up, but the suspension was not enough to sustain a Denver drainage dip. I think they're pretty deep. Lacking some cash, I had settled for far too little, and I'd gone for the cheap fix rather than fixing her deepest and more expensive need of a suspension fix. Haven't we all at times uh, entered into a basic fix situation, right? We've all been there. Uh, maybe it was a kind of cheap repair, like a, a pipe burst, and you kind of just taped it up, like makeshift taped it up, and you went on with your day, and you know, a week later, you're just cooking, or maybe you're grabbing some cleaner out the bottom of the, of the sink, and oh, I'm like this water in my face. Oh my goodness, I did not fix this. Maybe it was some Something like your washing machine broke and you thought, right, I, I really got to clean these clothes for tomorrow. Like I've, I've got an interview, right? I'm, I'm going to go to Best Buy and I'm going to go get a new washing machine. You got whatever washing machine seemed to be a good deal. But that, this washing machine is the reason why your clothes have that strange mark on it. You just bought something that wasn't great. It was a cheap fix. As one of my friends famously used to say, buy cheap, buy twice. We've all been there, haven't we? Tried to take a shortcut, save a little money, tried to get a quick fix. But we do have really busy lives, don't we? And sometimes the problems come when we're not expecting it. We just aren't ready. We don't have the time or we don't have the money or we can't even find the thing that we need. Maybe it's a really specific car part and we can't even find it. But sometimes there are some deeper issues where we look for a basic fix too. Have you experienced this? Maybe it was a relational misunderstanding with a friend and you just tried to kind of patch it up over a text and it just didn't land right. Or maybe you tried to patch things up with your spouse by buying them a gift rather than apologizing. Or perhaps there's just this family rift in your, in your family. Like all our families are so complicated, but, and you just don't want to go there in the holidays. There's just too much drama. And besides, it's the holidays. No one wants to be thinking about these things. Sometimes we don't want to engage with the harder things because they're painful. And in this section of Luke 5 that we're looking at this morning, Jesus meets a man's deepest need. So turn with me to Luke 5, 17 through 26. And I'll read it for us. The question is, Jesus meets the deepest man, a deepest, uh, the deepest need of a man. But is that all there is to the passage? Let's see. One day, Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your head, hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So this week we have yet another healing in our passage, but this one's a little bit different to last week's. So let's walk through this passage together. It says, one day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem. So here we have it. We have the religious leaders and they're all gathered here to hear Jesus teach. There is some serious high profile attention and they're all sitting waiting to hear what Jesus has to say. And if you back up to uh, verse 15, borrow from last week, you'll see that there are hordes of others too. Attention around Jesus is growing rapidly. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So God had empowered Jesus to heal the sick. And we learn two things from this. Number one, that God cares about our physical state and he is able to do something about it. God's presence in this situation brings healing. And I know that for many of you, there are many, many stories of how God's presence has healed you in your lives. And next, we learn that a group of friends have carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus. It's not clear at all how far these these men traveled, but they are exerting great efforts to bring this friend to Jesus instead of hoping they could just have some kind of home visit. They had seen their friends suffer daily, probably for many years, and they saw this opportunity, an opportunity to be seized and for his suffering to end. They firmly believed Jesus could heal their friend. And if you think about it as well, they probably never met Jesus. They probably heard of reports of Jesus, but they had faith and they believed that he could heal their friend. And like the leper from last week, This guy, the paralyzed man, would also have been considered an outcast. For him to be healed would have been revolution for him, not only physically, but also socially. If Jesus healed this man, his life would be transformed and he would no longer be considered an outcast. He would have his dignity restored with his mobility. And we want, don't we want healing for our friends too? Many of us know people who are hurting right now, and we would have that same urgency that these friends had. So, insert yourself into the scene. These men, they reach the front of the house. They've probably never been to this house before. They probably just heard, oh yeah, it's kind of past the bakery and just down the road and take a right past John's house and it's just there. Okay, cool, got it. So they come to the front door, but there are so many people there that it's basically impossible for them to get in. Like, think about it. I mean, you know, I've been on the the tube, the London Underground before, and, you know, we really pack in tight like sardines, as my dad would say. And and you're kind of squeezing in, but they've got this big mat and they've got this human on top of the mat. They're not going to get him in. Like, excuse me, please. No, it's not going to happen. So what's going to happen? Well, 
classic. They have a they have external ha- uh, stairs on these on a lot of these buildings that that was common, and so they thought to themselves, right, we need a plan B. So thought, okay. Let's go up the stairs and see if we can get in from the roof. There are probably some of them in there going, what the heck? Like, we, no, that's a bad idea. Another of them going, no, we've got to do this. It's the only way. Okay. And so, like, I don't know if you guys have ever helped someone move. Um, I have done my fair share of helping people move. It's a lot. Um, and especially in a really um, crowded city like London, um, it's, a, it's a whole task. But... but you know the worst bit is when someone has a couch and they need it to be moved all the way up the stairs. And it's a heavy, beefy couch. Maybe it's made of oak and has some, you know, has some nice leather, some pl- a plush um, down, coat, like inner. And you're trying to, they're trying to get up just like this. They're kind of moving this object. But th- this one's got a person on it. So it's not okay to think to yourself, okay, a couple of scarfs, I can settle with that when they take it out my deposit at the end. It's fine. Um, no, that's not going to cut it. There's an actual man on here, and he's paralyzed. Like, uh, the guy's probably saying, hey, guys, like, take your time, take your time. They're in a rush. They really want to get to the top, like, to get him before Jesus ASAP. They're tired. They've been carrying him for maybe days. I don't know. A long time, probably. They're exhausted. And so eventually, slowly, slowly, step by step, they get up to the top of the roof. But the problem is, is there's still a roof there. So what do we do about the roof? Well, they decide to make some structural adjustments (laughs) to the roof to get in front of Jesus. Now, this is kind of audacious because if you think about it, they probably do not know who the owner of this house is. They have no idea. It could be a really important person. They could get in a lot of trouble for doing this. It could be a lawsuit. They're kind of thinking, okay, let's, let's just adjust the roof. But the other problem is this guy's on a mat. They can't just kind of be like, sweet, I'll just drop him. Bam. No. You've you got to do it a little bit more slowly. So what do they do? Well, they decide to make a makeshift pulley system. But they probably didn't bring a a rope. I think that's a fair assumption. They were trying to get in through the front door like a normal person. So they thought, okay, right, what what can we use around it? Oh, there's a rope here. Oh, it doesn't look like the best kind of rope. Now, I'm kind of imagining, like my mom used to, she used to put all our clothes on a big line, and they would all be sitting there. And obviously, you'd see the, the line kind of sag and, you know, with the weight of it all. And I'm kind of thinking, this is probably what they had. Not some kind of shipping rope, but some kind of flimsy random rope that was maybe used to tie up, a, you know, to have a few clothes up there, hanging up there in the, in the hot Middle Eastern sun. Maybe kind of like Colorado. Things dry very fast here. But anyway, they're working their tails off, and they're being super resourceful. But they are also risking their own humiliation. And they're also physically risking their friend. What if the rope snap? Bam. Oh, like, he's not just paralyzed. He now has broken limbs. Like, it's not going to happen. They genuinely believe that Jesus could heal, so they acted with urgency. 
And we know that we would act with the same urgency with our friends. Just think of the scene as well as they take apart the roof. You can imagine like starting to hear the little cracks. The, those who are super observant here, they'd be like, oh, what's going on? What the heck? And you see, you see kind of little bits and pieces start to come down, <coughs> coughing, <coughs> spluttering, wiping the stuff off. What is this? What's going on? And then like this man is like being, well, first of all, they'd see the mat and they're thinking, what? Is, what? Oh, there's a there's a man on. The, what the heck? And so they, you know, you can imagine the conversation just kind of rising, the general hubbub of like people going, "Oh, what's that? What's that? You see, what what is that?" You can imagine that the audience were not impressed, let alone the owners of the house. Man, if they were there. But it seems like they kind of just watched in disbelief and let it happen. There's nothing to suggest there was some kind of resistance to this event. I think they just watched it happen. And Jesus too. And in verse 19, we read, they lowered this guy right in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. It does not get more direct or forward than that. And the whole crowd's attention would have been completely captivated. You can imagine it. But imagine now how the religious leaders would be reacting. (laughs) The opening of God's word is being interrupted. Any self-respecting rabbi, a.k.a. Jesus, should have sent this guy packing. Imagine if someone just kind of burst into the pace center right now and said, Hey, help, I, I, I need to get to the hospital. Can someone give me a ride? Like, how would we react? I guess I'd kind of stop. I guess you'd all turn. We'd all look. And someone's going to probably do it, I think. (laughs) These friends clearly had bags of faith that Jesus could meet their friend's greatest need. And they were not afraid to risk risk themselves and risk humiliation. They were in a hurry to see Jesus. And they didn't want to wait until he'd finished and gone and grabbed lunch or gone back to his home. But when the friends finally get to Jesus, and it's clear that they're asking for a healing, he responds in a really surprising way. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. How often are we a little confused by the way that God responds to our requests? But the teachers of the law aren't just surprised. They are completely outraged. As you'll read in the text, they think that they have heard blasphemy. Now, blasphemy might not mean much to you or I, but just think if someone uttered a racial slur. Imagine the kind of outrage. That is the kind of outrage that we're talking about here. Yet while the teacher's uh, conclusions are misinformed, they are right that only God can forgive sins. They see Jesus as a man declaring that he can forgive sinners of their sin. And to them and the audience, the religious leaders and the audience, this statement is extremely offensive. To them, this human teacher is presuming to speak for God. They are right. He is a man, but they don't see that he is God. If Jesus is just a human, we are wasting our time here. But if Jesus is fully human and fully God, then he is very, very worth listening to. And if you believe this, it will change your life because God is able to meet your deepest needs and everything else. In Psalm 51, that famous psalm, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. A sinner against uh, you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
In our passage, it is unmistakable that Jesus is saying that he is God. He is saying he's the one sinned against and the one to forgive. And Luke is forcing us to be confronted with this same question. Is Jesus a blasphemer, a liar, or is he God? There are only two choices. Either Jesus can or can't forgive sins. Either Jesus can or can't forgive our offenses. And the question is, again, what do you make of Jesus? That's always the question. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this could radically change your life. This good news. But if you are a believer, not only has God met your deepest need, but he also sees your physical needs and is able to do something about them. In verse 22, Jesus then moves to give the Pharisees proof of his authority. They've got all these questions in their head. He's given them proof of his authority and power to forgive sins. He knows, just like we do, it's impossible to like visibly verify if someone's actually been forgiven. As one observer noted, uh, no, we don't walk around with like a red light, you know, a siren on our head saying, forgiven, forgiven. We don't. We have no idea who is forgiven and who is not. So Jesus asks the Pharisees whether it's easy to declare someone forgiven or healed. Clearly, it's easier to demonstrate if this paralytic man, paralytic man can, can be healed. Like, it's simple. Has his mobility been restored? Can he walk? Jesus then shows his authority to forgive by showing his authority and power over this man's body. You can trust this same authority to forgive your sins and meet your physical needs. God may not meet your physical needs in the way or the timing that you expect, but as we'll learn in Luke 12, we can trust God enough not to be anxious. Jesus makes this plain. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is saying his healings help his audience to visibly, like, visibly see his authority, to be visibly proved of this authority. And this is especially obvious to Jesus' audience since sin and suffering were so intimately connected. So the physical healing reflects the power of the deeper spiritual healing. But how do we gain this forgiveness that Jesus is authorized to give? As we see in our passage, Jesus forgave this man based on his faith and the faith of his friends. Whenever there is forgiveness, it is always preceded by faith. And faith is always preceded by repentance. To be forgiven, we need to own our wrongs. It's called repentance. And trust that when forgiveness is given, it is given. It's the same in our human relationships. If we fail to believe this, forgiveness breaks, breaks down. The power of it breaks down. Ask for forgiveness and Jesus will give it to you. And by faith, we can also trust that God will also meet our physical needs. And I want to take a second here just to explain a unique feature of the passage. So if you look down there, um, it's in verse 24. It says, um, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
this word, the Son of Man, this title, the Son of Man, um, I definitely have been, had been confused by it for many years. What does it mean? Well, it comes from the book of Daniel. Um, it's uh, referring to the description of a savior figure, a messiah figure in the book of Daniel. And a son of, human, of a human is obviously a human. So when you hear a son of man, think a human savior. It's really as simple as that. <laughs> so... Jesus being a human savior is really significant for us because it means he can relate to us in our physical needs because he had them too. So after explaining that he has authority in verse 22, Jesus simply asks the man to get up and walk. And he does this with ease. Look at this. Immediately, he stood up in front of them. Jesus demonstrates his authority with his powerful words. This is a miracle of words. This physical healing is a visible demonstration of the invisible, invisible reality of this man's spiritual healing, which is his forgiveness before God. And one last thing to note from this passage is that we see the importance of intercession. As the faith-filled friends of the paralyzed men bring, him, bring this paralyzed friend right into the presence of God, Bringing our friends to Jesus, whether they are a follower of Jesus or not, will radically change their lives. So, the last episode from last week, uh, Jesus healed a leper, which was an incredible scene as he touches someone with a highly infectious disease. It's kind of like COVID on steroids. This guy's a complete social outcast. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't heal this man, just heal this man, he also forgives him. Now, it can be easy to look at this passage and passages like it and deduce uh, they were just too bothered about physical and material things. It's all about the spiritual. It's all about forgiveness. But the issue is that Jesus also deals with the spiritual, the, the physical. We could read this passage and be thinking, stop worrying about um, our physical or material needs. Stop worrying about paying the bills. Stop worrying about uh, your, your work deadlines or your kids. As a famous country song says, Jesus, take the wheel. But that is not what this passage is about. It's only a half-truth that it's all about forgiveness rather than the material and physical concerns. Jesus does care deeply about our physical, material, and emotional suffering. Jesus cared about this paralytic man's inability to walk and the social stigma that he would have experienced and his pain from that. After all, God did create us physical beings, didn't he? We're not just souls floating around. We're not souls trapped in bodies. Our bodies are a beautiful thing that he created and gave to us. Jesus cares deeply about your physical and emotional suffering. He sees you and he cares for you deeply about every single need that you have. Even though suffering is an us problem, we, it came into the world through our sin, our rejection of God's design for flourishing, he still cares. He doesn't owe us this, but he still cares, and he has acted decisively in Jesus Christ. Jesus cares about you, even enough to meet your deepest needs and all your other needs. Jesus cares about all of it. The more we believe this, the more vibrancy we will have in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus hasn't just left you since that time when he forgave you. Maybe it's a moment. Maybe it was more of a progressive um, process. He is with you every day. He didn't leave you once he'd forgiven you. 
Forgiveness is only the beginning, and God also wants to provide for you and transform you. So what does it look like to walk with Jesus? We'll look down at verses 25 through 26. You will get up and walk since you have been freed from the paralysis of sin. Forgiveness is the antidote to the paralysis of sin. And it then empowers us to confidently cast off sin despite our setbacks. It is a powerful antidote. Casting off sin is also a practice of joy. God created us to flourish. Sin is rebellion against God's plan for flourishing. And so casting off your sin is your flourishing. Don't settle for less. Press into the flourishing plan God has for your life. If we walk with Jesus, we will also praise God. See the end of uh, verse 25. Each week, we actually have a chance to do this through singing. Even if you don't feel like you're a singer, there's something special that happens when we sing these truths to each other and our souls are invigorated. I, uh, I had uh, my own struggles with uh, singing when I was a kid. I uh, didn't like doing it. It was kind of not something boys did, um, apparently. And uh, so I, I wrestled with that. But then they put me in a choir, so I, I guess I had to figure it out eventually. I also come from a place where singing in a sports stadium is a really big deal. You sing loud and you sing proud. No one cares if you're out of tune. It's all about the passion and the energy. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and Google um, Glory Glory Man United on YouTube. It's a great soccer chant, one of the best. But let's sing loud and proud of our faith because it's far more important and powerful and invigorating to the soul than cheering for our soccer team. And if you know you are forgiven, you will praise God. You will be amazed. Look at the passage. You will be filled with awe. You will share what you've seen and experienced with others. Good news is infectious. See how... In verse 26, everyone is filled with awe and they can't stop talking about it, about the remarkable things that they have seen. I remember when I used to work in an office, the first thing that you talk about to break the ice was, do you see that last night on BBC News? Oh, whoa, like that was crazy. Everyone talks about infectious news. And if we've seen and experienced something awesome, we want to share it. It's just natural. And so how do we cultivate this? Well, first of all, remind yourself daily of how Jesus has forgiven you, transformed you, and provided for you. Let's stir each other up too and ask each other, what has God been doing in your life recently? Let's do it alone and let's do it together. What would it look like though if we were all flourishing in a vibrant walk with Jesus, singing his praises, rejecting sin, sharing our faith? We know that we won't do this perfectly, let's get real. But what if we pressed into this with incrementally more effort than we currently are pressing in with? I can see that we, RP, we're doing these things already, but let's continue to press into them. And so if we all believed that God takes care of all of our spiritual and physical needs, what would our lives look like? Well, first... We would ask God to deal with our deepest problems. We wouldn't settle for simply trying to refrain from particular sinful habits. But we would ask God to reveal to us the deeper spiritual issues and to bring us healing. And we would ask for transformation. Jesus went right to the heart of the issue. Let's go right to the heart of issue two and follow our savior. 
Second, we would experience greater peace. We would be able to trust God for all our physical and material needs, and we would be inspired to partner with God to meet the physical needs of others. This is part of the role of the church. And when we believe that Jesus truly meets all of our needs, both spiritual and physical, we will want to get this truth into the hands of others with the same eagerness that these friends demonstrated for us. The two greatest commandments, we heard one of them, love your neighbor. The second is love God. And as we consider our neighbors, those around us, let's ask ourselves the question, do we want them to be spiritually healed? We need to want this first before we begin. A second question worth pondering is, do you tend towards bringing someone a meal or do you tend towards wanting to share the gospel with them? Why do you think that is? Because Jesus calls us to holistic love of our neighbors and each other within the church, the body of Christ. Jesus does care most about our deeper spiritual needs, but he also really does care very deeply about our material needs. And you see it right here as he raises this man to walk. Many of Jesus' opportunities also came through attending to the physical needs of others. Now, it's not to say that we attend to physical needs of others only to share the gospel, shoehorn them in, the old Christian trick. No, we want none of that. That's not to say that. But let's instead just joyfully serve each other, serve others, whether or not a gospel opportunity presents itself. Because our physical actions actually demonstrate our spiritual beliefs and our world is watching. If we believe that Jesus cares about our spiritual and physical well-being, we will be transformed as we trust him with our whole lives and not just our salvation. And we will want to share this remarkable news with others. Trust Jesus with it all. Share him with all because Jesus is able to meet your deepest need and everything in between. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your abundant and lavish love that you have shared with us so graciously. I thank you that you come. You are not afraid to meet our deepest need. You don't shy away from it. I thank you that you have saved us and redeemed us if we are believers. And I thank you that that offer of salvation is out there for those who do not yet follow you. I pray um, that you would continue to work in our hearts. Help us to cast off sin and be transformed by your glorious grace and forgiveness. Pray these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name, our Savior. Amen.